Cloud computing has come a long, long way from the early days of mainframe time-sharing technology and virtualization. Over the past decade alone, we've seen cloud computing experience tremendous growth, providing ubiquitous solutions for both consumers and enterprises. This trend is expected to continue with the rise of cloud-based services for machine learning, artificial intelligence, and edge computing. However, the transformation to cloud computing remains a very challenging prospect for many enterprises. Enterprises need to consider factors such as cost, security, legacy, and on-premise technologies, and the value of using cloud-native versus cloud-agnostic services. In this round of cocktails, our guests shed some light on the evolution of cloud computing, how it has changed the way enterprises deploy IT, how enterprises balance the demands of the cloud and legacy systems, analyzing your company's capabilities of going cloud-native, and the future of the cloud. Joining us today from Australia's Store Cloud CEO and founder, Cocktails co-host David Brown. Hi, David. G'day, Captain. And today's guest is an internationally recognized industry expert and thought leader who is currently the Chief Cloud Strategy Officer for Deloitte Consulting. He has written more than 13 books on computing, published more than 7,000 tech articles, and spoken at more than 700 conferences. He's also a GigaOM research analyst, a cloud computing blogger for InfoWorld, and a frequent contributor to IEEE Cloud Computing, Tech Target Search Cloud and Search AWS. Joining us to share his knowledge and expertise is, well, we didn't plan this, but another David, David Linthicum, all the way from Virginia. Welcome to the podcast. Oh, it's great to be here. And lots of Davids in the world, I found out. So we could have a <laughs> And a fair share of David Browns as well. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so 13 books and 7,000 tech articles. That's a lot of content. For someone who works on the content side of things, I'm just curious, how did you get into publishing? Well, uh, boy, I started way back when, when I was in my 20s. I used to publish articles for the local uh, PC SIG. You remember those days, special interest groups, days before the internet was around, and we used to get together once a month and uh, exchange ideas on how to build and deploy PCs. And I used to you know, publish wiring diagrams and lots of technical articles then. Uh, a little challenging because I'm severely dyslexic, uh, never spelled well, uh, and um, you know, barely made my way through college and high school. With those stuff, so I started just to train my brain uh, in order to, you know, produce additional content. And actually, the use of the computer and the word processor, you know, kind of changed the game for me because it could, you know, in essence, go behind me and check my spelling and my grammar and things like that. We could in the early days of stuff. So, leverage that as a crutch, and I found out that it was a career enhancer. So the more I published, the more people recognized my name, and the, you know, more jobs I got, and the more money I made. And when you're in your twenties and you want to go out and have a good time and buy a car and things like that. You know, that that kind of meant a lot. And it just progressed in my career. And so in other words, I started writing books. You know, the articles, uh, you know, started to go. PC Magazine, I was one of the editors there. That was a great a great amount of fun because it was part of testing and deployment. If you remember, PC Magazine's editor's choice, I was involved in that. Then any number of enterprise software books, DBMS, database programming design, um, uh, case trends, which was computer-aided software engineering trends. Just basically anything that came along that I thought was interesting as a topic and subject area, that's kind of the way I learned how the subject area was. And so in other words, you can't do everything 
as a human being. I can't be an expert in every programming language and every architecture and every database, um, but I can learn a lot about a lot of things, um, just kind of based on the fact I'm writing about them. So I know a lot about a few things, and I know a little about a lot of things, and I do that through research and writing. It allows me to, in essence, kind of figure out how things are shaping and working together. You know, it allows me to identify emerging patterns and you know, kind of that's what I do for a living now. It's figuring out where the ball is going to be kicked, figuring out what the next generation technologies are going to be. And in my, you know, publishing history, in the last book I published, I think it was 2009, they've kind of fallen out of favor right now with people who are actually, you know, trying to get information, was ultimately just revealing new concepts that didn't exist before and seeing if I could create a market around the concept. So EAI, Enterprise Application Integration, you know, that was my term uh, that was, you know, basically represented by the same book. Uh, cloud and service-oriented architecture, you know, just basically building on those. And then got into writing columns. I've been writing the cloud computing column for uh, InfoWorld for the last uh, 12 years and any number of other publications as well. And, you know, I do a lot of uh, radio and TV and podcasts like this, and I, I just really enjoy it. Okay. So you have witnessed the evolution of cloud computing over the last 20 or so years. So how has the cloud changed the way enterprises provision and deploy IT? Well, ultimately, it provides a different consumption model, you know, at the end of the day. You know, people always talk about the revolutionary nature of cloud, but if you think about it, we're still dealing with databases, storage, compute cycles, and many of the same platforms we leverage on-premise. If you look at what cloud computing is and the way it involved to be, is it's, in essence, the ability to configure a data center virtually. So certainly the infrastructure is a service provider. So I can put in storage, I can put in compute, I can put in databases, I can put in platforms, I can put in Linux and Windows NT and anything I need to configure out whatever infrastructure I need to support my applications. And the great thing about cloud is you can do it in about an hour, you know, versus if you're a traditional enterprise, you have to go through procurement cycles. It's going to take six months to a year, you know, for the standard Global 2000 company. So the revolution is really around the consumption model and the fact of the matter it's going to free us up from actually being innovative and creative and not necessarily putting IT as a limitation on the business. You talk to the CEOs out there, they're going to tell you that, you know, it takes me two years to integrate a company I buy because IT is going to basically spin around on the particular um, integration technologies that they need, need to make these things run. Where in cloud computing, it's a matter of spinning up what you need. It's a matter of core integration technologies. It's a matter of you know layering in different security platforms and doing so really kind of at the speed of need. So that's the revolution of it. And the second generation of it that we're seeing now is the ability to leverage advanced technology that doesn't exist on premise. I mean, some of the AI stuff you can't find on premises. You know, some of the machine learning based systems can't find on premises. Uh, certainly, the serverless computing stuff you can't find on premises because that would be weird. Uh, and ultimately, we're able to weaponize technology that prior to this was unaffordable and unobtainable. And right now, probably five years ago, the cloud kind of crossed the chasm where they have better technology than we do on premise, whether it's security, governance, management, monitoring. And that's because if you look at the way the R&D dollars are being spent within the technology companies, they're investing in building cloud-based products, not necessarily on-premise-based products. So those two kind of waves occurred, and I think the next wave will be, you know, absolute the sync and migration of legacy systems moving forward and kind of dealing with that whole thing. But, um, you know, the, the revolution I saw, you know, certainly back in 99 when I got into the cloud game was the fact that this consumption model is going to be more aligned with what business needs than business even understands what they need. 
And that turned out to be the right thing. But of course, it took, you know, 11 years to do that. Can we talk, uh, you mentioned on-premise a few times there. Can we talk a little bit more about that? Um, many companies have still very significant investments in uh, IT infrastructure, which is on-premise. On uh, how do companies balance the demands of cloud with a legacy on-premise system? Yeah, I mean, I've been in cloud for uh, you know a long time, and I, I live in uh, Northern Virginia, and this is the data center capital. It seems like of the world, and I'm watching data centers go up. Probably, you know, there's uh, probably ten projects right now within five miles from me. And so, what happened? You know, suddenly the ability to leverage cloud and share resources would get us away from traditional data centers. Well, the reality is much different. The reality is that there's a certain amount of infrastructure that we're going to have to own. Either that's going to be in managed service providers colo providers or our own private data centers. Um, so we're going to hit a saturation point in cloud migration. So cloud guys don't like me to say this, which you know, typically between 70 and 75%, where the remaining 30% can't migrate anywhere. And they're more valuable to the business than a lot of things we have in the cloud. And therefore, we have to make these things you know, cohabitate. What I say, work and play well together. And right now, we don't have a lot of very good middleware layers that are able to span on-premises in the cloud. We're getting to security, we're getting to governance, we're getting to management monitoring, which have this duality of roles, where they're able to, in essence, monitor systems that we own, monitor systems and manage service providers and colos, as well as in the public cloud. Um, that's new to everybody, though. Everybody has a tendency to kind of want to leverage whatever native tools and technologies are there moving forward. So. The thing that uh, you know, I've been spouting for a long period of time, and it's actually got me more ire than anything else, is the fact that I don't think these legacy systems are going to completely go away, more so than you think. They're going to be a big part of our infrastructure moving forward. I think we're going to be able to find analogs, other ways to run them. Uh, colos and managed service providers are good options for that right now. And everything's not going to be able to live in the cloud. And by the way, um, even if we have platform analogs that exist in the cloud, that doesn't necessarily mean that a data set or an application workload should exist in the cloud. And also we're finding that the economies are really kind of driving a lot of things back to the data centers. I mean, some of the Silicon Valley based companies where they're putting out a social media platform or they're putting out a gaming platform and they did so in the um, in Amazon cloud or whatever public clouds that are out there, found that it's more cost effective to basically move it back to their existing data center that they own. Because you think about it, it's really kind of a single pattern of a workload. In other words, they're running a game. They're doing one thing. They're not running 10,000 applications like a typical enterprise is. And if they're able to own the hardware and software and able to optimize that and optimize the network bandwidth as it goes between them and the users and able to do so at a, at a, at a decreased cost, that's where we're going to be. And I think we're going to see a lot of that. We're going to see normalization in the market where people moved out to cloud, probably ill-advised, and they're going to normalize back to the data centers, their private data centers or colos, things like that. And then we're going to see certain platforms move out to the cloud. You know, one of the things that I tell my clients when I meet with them is, is you know, I'm not a cloud bigot. Um, I'm here to basically uh, mediate the best solution, you know, to the problem and the best architecture, which is going to be optimized in a certain way. And sometimes that's on-premise, sometimes that's other platforms, sometimes it's cloud, private cloud, edge computing, IoT-based computing, all of the above. And it's really becoming that way and figuring out how we're going to, you know, look at this from a, I guess, a unpartisan way, you know, since, since we have an election coming up, um, where you're actually going to pick out the right solutions um, for the problems that we're looking to solve and not necessarily move in a certain way, what I call the managed by magazine crowd, just because everybody else thinks it's trendy to move out in this direction. 
Mm. Uh, I guess a lot of pain points associated with it if you if you try to make that move and, and you're not ready for it or the or it really wasn't designed to be made that move. Is there any sort of uh, use cases which come to mind where uh, people really shouldn't try and move on-premise to the cloud? Yeah, I mean, obviously, if you have a significant amount of security risks uh, that's there um, and you're worried about, uh, you know, for example, data sovereignty issues, you know, some of the countries out there have, you know, very strict, um, you know, data retention rates, auditing rates, things like that, where it's almost impossible to move it out into the cloud. If you have to audit these systems in a certain way, in many instances, the cloud providers just don't provide a way for you to do that. You can't walk through their data centers, for example, and, you know, take the serial numbers off of their servers. You don't know where their data centers are, and that's a good thing. You don't know what servers are running on. That's a good thing. Mm -hmm. uh, you don't know who's maintaining the servers. So if those kind of restrictions are there, that immediately eliminates cloud. The other thing I say, which is a little different, different than most people have in an opinion, if you're overly concerned about the control aspect of it, in other words, you're going to think that you're running a risk, even though I don't think you're going to be running a risk, those are reasons to hold off for now because things are only going to get better in the cloud. Security is going to get better. Governance is going to get better, things like that. And so if you have any kind of reservations of the fact that we're taking additional risk and in moving into the cloud, which, by the way, you are, any migration comes along with a risk, mm -hmm. then maybe it's something you shouldn't do, you know, moving forward. And then the cost justification. You know, obviously, it's changing uh, from a uh, really consumption efficiency or, or basically cost efficiency to business agility, you know, kind of an argument, but you have to completely look at it. In many instances, if it's a, you know, 10% increase in efficiency, don't do it. I mean, your risk, cost of risk is gonna be way above 10%. Yeah. If it's 30%, you know, maybe it's worth it's worth the risk. Mm -hmm. And if there's other, uh, other mitigating factors there, the ability to kind of leverage technology as a force multiplier for your business and agility and those sorts of things. And it's something you should probably do. You mentioned an interesting point I also wanted to ask you more about, which was this uh, concept of we're going to reach some sort of saturation point. I think you mentioned it's like 75, 80 sort of percent, and then, then we're going to see some sort of contraction back to the, you know, private data centers or on-premise. Where where do you think we are in that cycle at the moment? How far oh, away? Yeah, we're at about 30, 40% penetration right now in the, in the best cases, and that's considering SaaS as well. And SaaS is kind of an, a big beast unto itself that no one seems to be paying attention to. And as far as infrastructure as a service migrations, you know, maybe 10 to 20% for most global 2000 enterprises out there, it's fairly minuscule than what I think the press is talking about. Mm -hmm. So when I see things out there, I still see data centers in play. I see people building net new applications. They may have moved a thousand applications out of the uh, 10,000 applications within the particular enterprise. They're in the process of moving data. They're in the process of figuring out um, security and complexity and all those sorts of things. And that's kind of hindering the movement right now. And I think that people are trying to accelerate, but it's tough to accelerate. That's an interesting thing because, you know, like you mentioned SaaS. SaaS is, uh, you know, it's a fad, it's a buzzword, and sort of VC chasing SaaS and pushing SaaS. But in our particular business case, which is uh, application integration, API management, and uh, data management, most of our demand comes from on-premise related uh, systems. And, and so whilst there is this, uh, market demand in terms of the business case of driving into SaaS and providing a solution which is a cloud-based solution for uh, really sort of cloud-based integration type patterns. Fortunately, from the outset, we developed uh, 
both a hybrid solution of both on-premise and cloud. And we're finding still today, the, the vast majority of the uh, demand from enterprise customers is for an on-premise solution, which I think is partly because most of our you know, new age competitors, at least, uh, are, are purely cloud-based. Uh, so it's interesting that you know, perhaps the market was trying to service a demand, particularly in the enterprise space, which was maybe forecast to be, well, I guess they, they were forecasting the demand decrease for on-premise, you know, accelerated rate, perhaps more than it actually will. Yeah, I, I think that's that, that that's in line. I mean, um, as this, you know, I've been a CTO five times, and you always have to predict uh, the platform utilization where people are going to be. And I think the reality is is that um, uh, people have a tendency to be more reactionary uh, in organizations that are building product, and if they see people moving to a SaaS, which has been that way for the last fifteen, even twenty years, if you look at the application service providers that we had way back when. Um, it's, it seems like you're going to be all in on, on creating a SaaS-based version of your system. Uh, I think you did it the right way. In other words, you're creating a hybrid version, and you consume the technology however you want to consume the technology. But many mm -hmm. people have just said, we're all in on SaaS, mm -hmm. and in essence, trying to sell it that way. And then they put an automatic limitation on consuming the technology. And I wouldn't do that as a CTO. Certainly looking at the ability to do duality and deployment, the ability to kind of deploy to two different systems and basically having one be multi-tenant and basically using the same code base for those sorts of things. And that's all possible if you're, you know, a smart developer, a smart programmer, a smart product manager. Yeah, right. You mentioned that you were talking to a lot of clients. So when you talk to clients, do you see right away some of the success factors or some of the variables that are present currently with their organization. So who has a more positive success rate when adopting a cloud strategy or going for uh, digital transformation projects with the cloud? Yeah, it's two core factors. Number one, people who have vision as to where they're looking to take this stuff. Uh, in other words, they know where they're going one year, two year, five year, even 10 years down the road. And what they need to be as a business and what IT needs to be to support the business. And then second would be folks with resources to make it happen. I think the biggest hindrance to moving in the cloud is people underestimate the amount of money it's going to take to make these moves. And reality is it's going to be binary. Either you're going to hit the threshold of resources you need to actually make the move successfully, or you're going to fall short and you're actually going to waste the money you're, you're going to spend, even though you're spending less money than other, folk, other folks in the peer group. So when I hear people, let's we're going to uh, basically fund this cloud migration by savings we're going to get from cloud, that will never work your ability to, in essence, be all in on migrating these various systems and getting the right talent and tools and technology you need to make it happen, you know, it's going to be a lubrication to success. And then also the ability to kind of understand where you're going. If you could, you could spend lots of money, and I see this all the time too, without having a good vision as to where the commonalities are and how you're going to, in essence, create a common architecture and move stuff forward where it's just going to fall short because you're going to build too much complexity because everybody in essence is um, has too many choices. They're selecting what they think is best to breed and you're going to end up with a big complex mess that you spend a lot of money to get to. They're going to have to fix. Interesting. Well, uh, I was just thinking about the enterprise uh, software solutions which are typically sold uh, in the day as highly customizable frameworks. I used to get frustrated when dealing you know, as a customer with an enterprise vendor and being told it was a framework rather than a product, which meant that I had to spend uh, exponential uh, amounts of 
dollars on the uh, implementation of the software, not just on the product licensing fees. Now, the upside was as a customer is it could be tailored to my unique requirements. You know, I can do what I needed with it. My, and that's the differentiator between an enterprise requirement to a, a small business requirement. But one of the downsides was that it could also result in lock-in to that vendor and or the systems integrator, for that matter, who was implementing it for you because they knew the customizations that were being implemented. So it wasn't often easy to migrate away from these solutions. And do you think in, in the cloud space, do you think something similar is happening, that uh, the cloud native solutions that public cloud providers are, are providing, such as cloud native databases and uh, systems like, like that, are they providing the equivalent of the uh, vendor lock-in of the traditional software model? Yeah, that's a great question. I think for the most part, they are. When I hear cloud native, I, you know, I always tell my clients, you're really walking down the aisle with that particular vendor. However, the other, other side of the coin, if you're trying to be too generic and, and too open and trying to be you know, at least common denominator approach, you're, you're going to find that you're not able to um, satisfy the needs of your applications on any platform you run on. So that's the trade-off. So ultimately, most people aren't going to migrate off of where they're looking to go. They're going to leverage the technology for the life of the system. Not always, but most of the time. And so I tell people to kind of take a look at that. And if you are anticipating migration off a particular cloud provider and you're leveraging their secure, native security system, their native databases, an object database you know, system in AWS, uh, their particular platforms which are native to it and you can't find in other systems or other, uh, other clouds, then the trade-off's gonna be, it's gonna be um, almost uneconomically viable for you to move off that stuff ever. And so if they do jack up the price and you know, start charging you more, you're kind of in trouble. However, the other trade-off that we just mentioned is, okay, well, let's do everything generic and let's leverage open source databases and let's leverage you know, open source Linux systems and all these uh, open systems on the cloud. Yeah. There'll still be a cost of transferring the system. It's not going to be as hindrance as you leveraging the cloud native features, but actually in many instances, that's going to cost you more because you're building systems that are really kind of built to run on multiple clouds, and therefore they're going to be wasteful in terms of resources everywhere, and they're going to be more expensive to run over time. Mm -hmm. So the, uh, I mean, it's one of these, it depends answers as a consultant as to yeah. what you're looking at. And so you have to kind of take it on a case-by-case -case basis. So I can't stand in front of me and say cloud native is the way to go, even though lots of people are doing that now, or cloud native is not the way to go because it's going to cost lock-in. The reality is you have to consider all, all alternatives and figure out your best path in terms of cost and efficiency through those alternatives. And I guess uh, some, you know, one of the counter arguments of uh, pro uh, cloud native is also the, obviously the maintenance of the application itself. But, but I think also some of the vendors now of these open source applications like uh, MongoDB, I know are doing it, are providing the, the maintenance services where they're effectively doing that same remote management of the uh, database that you would get in a, in a native solution, a public cloud native solution. So I guess the uh, argument for lower maintenance can be some, somewhat mitigated uh, by you know, some of the services being offered by these open source solution providers as well. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, what would you recommend uh, to a company to, to to mitigate this this risk if they if they're looking at the, you know, the, the the go the open source route versus the cloud native route? Well, we we just kind of talked about that. I mean, really, you kind of have to take applications on a workload by workload basis. And I know that's a question that people want to hear because they want the easy answer. But the reality is, I can have an application that's running on a LAMP stack uh, that's been running in the enterprise for the last ten years. 
and I can find platform analogs for it, open source analogs for it in a public cloud provider where I'm not leveraging any cloud native features. And so it's almost a lift and shift port from one to the other. And that's obviously gonna be the cheapest way to migrate into the cloud. The downside could be that that application is gonna leverage those resources in a much less efficient way. And therefore my cloud bill is gonna be 20, 30% higher you know, over the 10, 10 year lifespan of the application. And versus, and also it's gonna run it's going to run um, in a diminished way because it's not leveraging the native APIs, leveraging the native security systems, you know, things like that. We're in essence running in an abstraction layer above those systems. Okay. However, and so if you go down to the native system, you're going to be able to hopefully get a lower cloud bill. You should, and ultimately run faster. You should, and therefore people are going to be happier with the performance, you know, which is going to be a step in the right direction. However, if for some reason the cloud provider, you know, raises the rates or you know something occurs where we have to move off that system, you're going to pay a quite hefty fee to, in essence, reconvert you know down to an open source standard that's going to run on premises or even move into another cloud native system, another public cloud provider. Mm -hmm. So these are the risks you need to need to you know in essence kind of talk through. And so my advice to this is almost like an attorney. So in other words, we're going to court, and this could go any way, and all. We have to kind of figure out where the vision is for this application, what this thing's, what this purpose is going to be, the importance of the business, you know, how much money we're willing to spend, and then really kind of talk about the trade-offs and making it happen. Many instances, probably uh, 60, 70% of the time, people go cloud native just because they're almost uh, have a religious belief around that, just because so many other people are talking about it. Uh, and then other instances are looking for the least common denominator approach, which is scary into itself because, in essence, you're going to run poor everywhere. Um, you know, versus just on one system. And of course, the argument that, uh, yeah, costs may go up haven't been founded yet because, you know, over the last 10 years, we've seen public cloud provider costs go down. And it may, it may well be another reason for the migration. You know, there could be some other fundamental reason, vendor, you know, affiliation or, or whatever it may be that is driving the change. But so far, cost probably isn't the major driving factor to wanting to change to, to Google versus AWS, for example. It typically isn't. It typically isn't. In many instances, they're, they're looking for the strategic advantage of leveraging cloud as a bringing value to the business in some other ways. Like I you know, always tell my clients, you know, people came to me for cost reduction in terms of migrating to the cloud, but they stayed for the uh, business agility, the ability to enhance the business using this technology. And if you look at some of the disruptors out there, they're able to weaponize cloud computing you know, the Ubers and the Netflix and other folks out there, there and there's many others that are you don't just don't hear about anymore, in essence, allow them to disrupt their business. And so they're able to become a better business because they're able to operate faster, able to move into the market, able to get products out and running, able to expand their business faster than any of the traditional business, you know, as things that sit on premise. And so moving forward, we have pharmaceuticals, we have, um, you know, banking systems, things like that that are in the works now. You know, they're going to be huge disruptors in 2021 and 2022 and the weapons that they're able to use is leveraging cloud computing as the ability to just basically move a lot faster you know car companies like you know tesla versus traditional you know detroit-based companies would be instances of it they're born in the cloud and therefore they have a huge advantage where do you think this is all going to end up what's what's your prediction for the next 20 years uh where is the public cloud what are the major innovations that we're going to see in the public cloud uh, providers over the next 20 years? I think ultimately we're going to hit a saturation point on the feature function uh, stuff in the next five years. Because, you know, right now, if you go to 
you know, some of the big cloud, uh, you know, cloud shows, you know, they're kind of stretching the limits. They're, you know, building things that we didn't think we needed. And so ultimately they're going to have so much money and so much um, uh, technology that's able to play and so many more resources in the, in the traditional software providers that in essence, it's almost like the way I describe it, it's almost like Word for Windows. You know, I use Microsoft Word. Well, I keep getting a new version of that, but I don't use any of the new features. You don't have to pay for it. And so I you know, basically use the same version of Word I used 10 years ago, and I think it would be perfectly fine. Well, it's beyond some of the resources that are there now. And so instead of storage and compute and, and all the bread and butter things that cloud computing does, it's really kind of the feature functions around that. So it's IoT, edge-based computing, digital twins, machine learning-based systems. That's where they're looking to make their money. Mm-hmm. Um, because all that stuff, by definition, is going to be cloud-native uh, to the most part. Some are not. Um, but your ability to kind of get people on that technology and leveraging the value of that technology is really going to be the big win for them. That makes the technology incredibly sticky. So people are going to definitely go to multi-cloud. Uh, we're, we're seeing that now almost 90% of the folks that are out there. That's going to expand. And I think the cloud companies are going to basically enhance a lot of their existing stuff, but they're they're going to reach a saturation point in themselves where people they're going to start building stuff people aren't asking for. And they're going to realize the folly in doing that, in essence, trying to get back to the essence of what they're able to do and manage these systems better. One of the things I do seeing happen is a lot of the public cloud providers kind of accepting the fact that it's going to be a multi-cloud world and the ability to kind of manage and monitor and work and play well with other public cloud providers that right now they don't like and hate. And so they're doing that for, the, um, for in essence, the, the value to the client. If the client sees them, really, they're supporting my multi-cloud and leveraging features and functions within their cloud that are native to the systems, and they can talk to Google and Amazon and Microsoft and make all these things work and play well together, then we're going to start moving in those directions. And we haven't seen that a lot yet, and I actually made a prediction that I was absolutely wrong about for reInvent last year. I thought that we were going to see you know, some of these things start coming out of the public cloud providers, but we, I haven't seen it yet other than some stuff you know, maybe that's shown up from Google. Um, so that's going to be a big thing. And then I think the cost reduction is going to occur as well. The ability to kind of get down to a commoditized cost, even though it's scary because we can't sign up to an enterprise license agreement where the costs are going to be held down in perpetuity. They're not signing those deals. And so they could raise the cost and the fees as a utility service, you know, very much like our water bills and electricity bills have gone up in the last few years. And they're doing the same thing in the cloud space. And it's even more scary if we're going to get down to three major cloud providers or five major cloud providers. Well, 10 years ago, we had 15, and their prices were easy to control. Um, I see commonalities in security systems. The ability to kind of mediate complexity is going to be the big thing to solve. Obviously, I've been focusing on that as, as kind of a discipline you know, for the last few years because a lot of my clients are mediating their complexity moving forward. The cloud providers are not helping on that journey, and I think they're going to have to start helping on that journey. So. There's basically, I think that if we're going to, you know, look at the next 10 years, the theme is going to be, you know, back to the bread and butter of what cloud does and really kind of focusing on doing that even better and better and cheaper and cheaper. And certainly everybody's going to leverage these advanced, you know, very cool, you know, cool kid technology like machine learning and, and edge computing and IoT and all these things like that. That's going to be part of it. Um, but I think businesses want to focus on the fundamental. There's not as much interest in that moving forward as I think that the cloud providers think. And even since the COVID stuff hit six months ago, I noticed a direct shift in people not necessarily focusing on analytics and AI technology and IoT and edge-based system. They're just focused on getting their stuff out of their data centers into the cloud because they need to view the data centers as being the risky 
aspect of moving into a pandemic. So if, we, if we, we're going to reach saturation point in, in a relatively short amount of time, and it's becoming, going to become a commodity item, and like you say, like a utility, and it's going to be you know, price compression. We obviously have very significant businesses we still need to justify here in the public cloud providers, and as you say, consolidating down to a few major ones. So I, I'm, I'm wondering where they go next. Do they do they put on a an application layer on top of the infrastructure as a service? Do they become software as a service providers, leveraging their own infrastructure? Well, they've been trying that for years. I mean, if you look at some of the uh, stuff that the public cloud providers are putting out, um, and they're all in essence SaaS providers as well. They may not be business applications per se, but they're you know, putting out 3D modeling systems and virtual reality systems. They're in essence software as a service, design systems, you know, things like that. And so we'll see more and more of that moving forward. But I think their better play would be to allow the third parties to build that infrastructure on their systems, which they're doing now. And therefore they, they get the money you know, from the utilization of the system without taking the risk from building the wrong IP that's going to tank in the market. But you know they're they're playing those games as well. I mean, um, you know, all the major cloud providers out there are also software as a service providers. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, certainly, uh, you know, Office and you know the Office products with Microsoft and Google, Microsoft and Google, and uh, you know, three D modeling and design engineering and some things that that AWS is putting forward. And it's just going to be integrated into their business. My advice to them, if I was CTO of these companies would be, you know, limit your ability to do this because in essence, saturates your under, underlying capability to build existing infrastructure uh, moving forward. In the case of two of them, they had an existing business that's, you know, 15 plus years old. So I understand why they're doing it. And really just kind of focus on what people need and that's reliable storage systems, things like that. You start putting your resources on building SaaS systems on top of it you're in essence diluting the resources that are basically focused on building a better cloud provider. And we haven't gone through a downturn yet. I suspect we will at some point in the future. And then those sorts of resources are gonna be, are gonna be um, uh, tougher to allocate. And those sorts of things will go away. And it's not a big PR move, by the way, to put out something that you lose faith in you know, five years down the road and you sunset it and pull it off the market and then the press goes nuts about it things like that. I see a lot of that happening coming forward. I think the normalization of the market is going to be a lot of these feature functions and even these SaaS products that are built by the public cloud providers, in essence, not being profitable into themselves, disappearing, and them not getting a big reliability points or you know trust points from doing that. It does make a lot more sense to, you know, to earn a cut from someone else's efforts through a marketplace type play, uh, you know, like a Apple, Google, Play Store. I guess that all the providers have a, a marketplace to provision software on their platforms, but it's not the exclusive distribution point for their software uh, platforms at the moment. So, yeah, vendors can still provision EC2 instances on Amazon and install their software directly, or customers can do it directly. You're not you're not forced to go through the marketplace. So it'll be interesting to see if that place becomes uh, more mandatory in the future, so that that you know thirty percent cut of the revenue stream is it yeah. You know, gets pulled through the marketplace uh, at some point in time in the future it might be an additional revenue stream that these guys could take a look at. Yeah, I have a, I have a lot of um, technology providers that make their entire marketing through marketplace. They have no salespeople, they have no marketing people, uh, and they're you know close to a half a billion to a billion dollar companies. And they just basically, they're living within the marketplace of the big three, Google, Microsoft, and uh, and AWS. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the only way they do it. The, the, the um, 
risk is there to the point you just made was you're in essence depending on somebody else to make your sales. And if I was CEO of the company, I would diversify fairly quickly, even if it took a bit of a loss to make that happen because we're in essence exposed. If those marketplaces go away or somehow they decide to drop us or, you know, whatever can happen if you're depending on somebody else for your business. That's some, some place I never like to be. You know, a couple of times I was a CEO and, you know, five times I was CTO. Um, I balked away from doing that. Each and every time I did it, it was the right decision. Uh, those are big numbers. So I'm, I'm surprised you've got uh, customers doing those kind of revenue numbers as an exclusive play through a marketplace. Yeah, they do. They do. And it's um, it's kind of what I call an invisible market, invisible economy that's out there. Mm. You know, people are able to, in essence, get very wiggy with how they sell things and they're avoiding human beings doing it. And so if you're born in the cloud and everything's going to be on demand, you're in essence leveraging the cloud provider as a place where you're building, deploying your systems. In other words, they're your infrastructure on behalf. They basically use it to sell your software as well. And so open source systems, um, believe it or not, they still make a lot of money on those things and providing services and, and extensions and, and uh, those in, in the marketplace. Proprietary monitoring, management software, security software, you know, things like that. Many of those folks uh, haven't invested in marketing and certainly don't have a sales staff in making it happen. They, in essence, become electronic order takers. And I think that's the best of the world if you can get it. You know, my concern would be that just going away and, you know, pulling the rug right out from under me or someone stealing my idea and me not having a very valid way to protect it. And we're in essence competing, we're in essence it's sitting in the list in the same marketplace in a way to differentiate my technology and all those sorts of things are risking moving forward. And so if you're starting a software company these days, as you guys know, you know, those are fundamental decisions you have to make in terms of what business model you're going to leverage. I mean, one's an investment, a lot of money and time and hiring human beings to go up and sell it. Uh, even your own existing distribution system that sits online. And the other is basically doing the marketplace stuff where you're paying homage to somebody else to sell your stuff. You have to pay a fee to make that happen. And they actually take a fee on each and every time you sell a product. Mm. And so, you know, what do you do? And I, I think those are those are interesting questions that, quite frankly, were easier to answer 10 years ago, but not as easy to answer today. 10 years ago, I just said no all, all the time. And uh, right now, I'd, I'd have to take a look at the model and look at the viability of the system in order to be, you know, what CEOs or CTOs do. And that's basically max and I shareholder value. So what's the best path to value? David, we covered lots of ground today um, and uh, solved the world's problems in public cloud and, and also now also, you know, taking your, your SaaS solution to market as well. Uh, thank you for your time today. Uh, really interesting conversation. I enjoyed it a lot. Yeah, me as well. Please ask me back anytime. All right. Thank you very much, David Linthicum. Before we end this podcast, can you tell us where people can find you, listen to your podcast, and learn more about your work? Yeah, I go out to iTunes and search on OnCloud Podcast, uh, published there about once a week. Uh, twice a week on uh, on InfoWorld, I have a, a column there, a blog there. I had that for the last 12 years. Um, published a lot on Tech Target. Um, also published on Gigom.com. I have a number of reports there where I do the research and really kind of dive deep into different technology spaces, things like that. And, uh, you know, do a lot of this and turn a lot of podcasts and, uh, and love talking to people about technology. And they can always reach out to me at dlinthicum at deloitte.com. All right. Thank you very much for being with us. You can listen to our previous episodes, which are available for streaming and or download on your favorite podcast platforms. By the way, what do you think about cloud computing? 
Let us know by commenting your thoughts and opinions on the comment section of this podcast. Also, if you need to learn more, you can visit our website at www.torocloud.com to read up on our blogs and find out more about our products. We're also on social media, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for Toro Cloud. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening to us today. On behalf of David Brown and David Linthicum, this has been Kevin Montalbo for Coding Over Cocktails. <laughs>